Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Joseph, very much. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. We are, as um, Joseph has intimated, we're in the middle of a series looking at the way Jesus prayed and the way that he encouraged and taught us to pray as well. And I want to start this morning by telling you a story my father told me actually years ago, uh, which was pivotal to his own spiritual growth. He said that one evening he got off a bus and there was a young lady waiting for him at the bus stop. And she said to him, Gordon, uh, will you come to, the, to a dance with me next Saturday evening? My father said, I love dancing, but I knew that I shouldn't be going to the dance with that girl. Never asked him to elaborate, actually, on that. But he said it was as if time stopped still as she asked that request, and he knew that this was a moment where he should really pray the prayer that Tim talked about last Sunday, the prayer of surrender. And so quite silently, he did just that. He gave his life again to God, said, you are Lord of my life. And he said to the girl, no, I will not come to the dance with you next Saturday evening. And he turned and walked away. Now, he said what was most significant or even surprising about this was what happened next. He said that as he walked away, he was overwhelmed with a sense of God's presence that he'd never experienced before. He said it wasn't just momentary, it lasted. He found an appetite to pray that he had previously not experienced. He started talking about his faith with others. He said that was surprising enough, but not only did he talk, but they listened and asked questions. He wanted to read the scriptures, and for the first time, I think, in the next year, read the Bible, the whole Bible through in the following 12 months. But the big question that he asked, because this was such a significant event, he would say, after the original decision to follow Christ, the most significant event that ever happened in his spiritual life, the big question that he asked was, what's happened to me? Like, can someone please explain this? And consequently, he talked to a lot of people and he read both devotional Christian books, but he also read the scriptures and his conclusion was this. Somewhere along the line, I got given more of the Holy Spirit. And he said that through his studying and his conversation, he realized there is a direct correlation between the thriving of our personal spiritual lives and the experience of the Holy Spirit. He said there's also a correlation between our corporate life. He said whenever the church has thrived, there is, has been previous to that or prior to that a particular outpouring or giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was to do a poll here this morning and say, who here would like to grow in your spiritual life today? Who would like to share your faith more easily, pray more eagerly, and read the scriptures with greater appetite? I suspect the great majority of us, given this is, after all, a church, would raise their hands and say, yes, I am interested in that. So the simple question which I want to ask this morning is, how do we get more of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. 
And what did Jesus instruct in terms of that? And to be honest, it's actually quite straightforward. And we're going to read a passage now. It's a passage that's very familiar to many of us in terms of prayer. And we apply it when we talk about it to many types of prayer. But if you watch and wait until the very last, the last half of the last sentence, you will notice that all of the teaching Jesus gives here is about one thing. Asking for more of the Holy Spirit. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? Now, I will dig into this passage in a few minutes, but I want to say a few things first. Firstly, let me just give some evidence. Let me support my father's thesis that whenever the Christian life has been whenever Christianity has been at a high point it's had something to do with the Holy Spirit and let me evidence it three ways firstly in the life of Jesus Christ now I want to start with Jesus because we can tend to think he was the son of God I mean given he was divine surely he didn't need the Holy Spirit as well he could just do whatever he should do well, we should remember that, yes, of course, he was the son of God, but he is also the perfect man who came to show us how to live the perfect life. Now, if we are going to be able to follow him, then it's important that he doesn't just do things out of his divinity. That is clearly not an option that is open to us. But we must be able to do it out of our humanity. And consequently, we see that even Jesus Christ depended on the Spirit. Before his ministry had even started, think of a time where you're about to start on something new and important. How do you feel? Nervous by any chance? Some doubts? Am I up to this? Can I do it? wonder whether Jesus had that sort of emotional experience as he prepared for ministry and was baptized. And we're told that as he came out of the water, a dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him suggests that if you want to live like Jesus does, then you need to know times where the Holy Spirit rests upon you. When he comes out of 40 days of prayer, we're told that though he went in full of the Spirit, he comes out in the power of the Spirit. wonder what that's all about. wonder what that feels like, to know the power of the Spirit in our lives. Intriguingly, Luke also refers to particular times where Jesus prayed, and we're told the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were there. It sort of suggests something other than Jesus. The power of the Lord and Jesus, they were both there. The presence of the Holy Spirit was there in such a way that it was clearly recognizable to Luke or to the onlookers at the time. They could tell there was something other, even if it was invisible, there was something other at work that was causing crowds to gather to Jesus Jesus, the perfect man who lived the perfect life that's a model for you and I, 
lived full of the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and with the Spirit at the work in his ministry, doing things which only the Spirit could do. That's quite a challenge, I would imagine. It's a challenge to me. I would imagine it's a challenge to most of us. That's item one to support the thesis. Whenever the church has dived and whenever individuals dive, there's a prior giving of the Spirit. Secondly, unsurprisingly, I guess, the early church. Two or three years ago now, uh, Philip and I were in Jerusalem and we got to see the room where it is thought that the 120 gathered to pray and then Pentecost happened. Extraordinary thought to imagine the 120 crammed into that room praying. Praying for power. They'd been told, wait for power. But I don't think they knew what they were praying for. I don't think they were expecting to hear wind. Which suggested another force coming into the room. I don't think they expected to seem to see. They thought they saw flames on people's heads. And of course they were they fell out onto the street and talked with a conviction and a persuasiveness and a winsomeness that meant by the end of one day, 3,000 others had joined them. The streets around that room, if that is indeed the room, are narrow. You can't gather a crowd right there. You'd have to go further. But they gathered 3,000 others. Well, that's a way to start a church. And the, as they read, the Old Testament, they realized maybe this is what was told ahead of time. This is the age of the Spirit. And that's how the New Testament understand it. I don't know whether you're aware of this today, but in Bible terms, you are still living today in the age of the Spirit. Started on the day of Pentecost, and it goes until Jesus returns, and that whole period of time is to be known by outpourings of the Spirit and acts of the Spirit. In fact, theologians say the acts of the apostles is misnamed the sixth book in the New Testament. Fifth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fifth book. Liam's always on the front row to assist me with such things. The fifth book of the Bible is, theologians would often argue, misnamed, not as shouldn't be acts of the apostles, but really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Individuals got filled with the Spirit. It meant that timid fishermen became bold and hard-hearted persecutors became soft-hearted and loving. So much of the Spirit was poured out on Samaria that it was simply summarized as joy filled the city. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? The reports. There's an unusual amount of joy in London because so many people have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Number three, Jesus, the early church, church history. We could land in all sorts of points over 2,000 years, but we'll go 120 years, 110 years back. Wales, 1904, the Spirit seemed to get, well, it did get poured out. And uh, as I was doing a little bit of research for this this week, I came across an article by the South Wales Gazette. Well, the, the intrepid, no doubt, reporters of the South Wales Gazette talked about the revival. That was their term for this outpouring of the Spirit. Here's what they said. They said, the revival still continues to monopolize general attention. In other words, it's the talking point of Abertilly, which was, the, which was where this newspaper was based, and the surrounding area. Almost everybody is talking about it. 
thinking about it or working in its interest. And the movement does not seem to flag at all. Converts are being made nightly and the enthusiasm is intensifying and spreading. Interestingly, at the back, at the bottom of the article, they list the number of converts that each church has had since this big spirit started outpouring. Here's the list. I'm not even going to begin to try and read those names. <laughs> well, what a wonderful thing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Across Wales, in 1904 alone, it was estimated that church attendance grew by 100,000 women, men, and children. Not only that, but there was social change. In other words, fascinatingly, it didn't stop in people's hearts or stop in the church. Publicans went out of business as people started to use alcohol responsibly. Debt reduced because people started to work and save rather than spend and see if they could afford to repay their debt. Economic output in Wales in 1904, 1905 and 1906 went up because when you get full of the spirit, you work harder. It's a, it's, it's a reality that most HR departments do not understand. <laughs> Miners stopped abusing the mules that worked in the bottom of the pits. This was good for the mules, but bad for the pit owners because the mules were so used to being sworn at and beaten to work that when they were treated kindly, they <laughs> stopped working. <laughs> so there, there was no benefit of economic output. But just to back up, and I use this just as a snapshot, just as a, a, somewhere to zero in on, but it's part of a huge phenomenon. 500 million Christians in the last century are said to have had experiences of the Holy Spirit. They're often termed Pentecostal or charismatic. That group of Christians is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. It seems that the giver of the gift is up to something and that it really rather matters. So, of course, it begs the question, well, look, if I was to do what Jesus said and pray for more of the Holy Spirit, what might happen? Well, there's more things than we have time to cover, but let me just suggest three. And the first is experiences of God's love. Christianity is, importantly, an experiential religion. Here is how Paul described it. In the middle of a book full of theology, and theology and experience not are at odds, they go together. Our heart and head should be on fire as they mix the emotion and the intellect. Romans 5 verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now where Christianity is not experiential, the focus becomes on what we believe and how we act. Now clearly what I believe and what I act are important, but if they're done without a sense of relationship and the love at the heart of that relationship, then very quickly it becomes hard and stale. The writer Don Miller says, without that sense of relationship and love, it becomes cold and dead, stale and formulaic, propositional and non-mysterious and scientific and of no power. He says that, when you just focus on beliefs and actions without love 
and connection with God. He said it fails to answer the deep longings and the questions of our soul. You and my faith starts with relationship and it starts with an experience of love. Then we conceptualize and we make it abstract and we understand it and we teach it and we live it and we live differently and all of that matters, but it starts with a relationship. And if you go today or next Sunday somewhere where where there's no life, you'll hear lots about what we should believe and how we should act, but you'll hear very little about who we connect with and the difference that that makes. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is it gives us experiences of God's love. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives us anointing. What do I mean by anointing? Well, this week, uh, one of the team members, Christchurch London team members, who normally cycles into, the, cycles into work, appeared a little flustered and a little late and apologetic, saying, I'm really sorry, but I got onto my bike this morning and started cycling along, and the chain just was clunky and not moving properly. I had to stop. I had to buy some oil. And when I put the oil on my chain, it all started working brilliantly. What had happened? He'd anointed the bike chain. The bike chain had got anointed. Now that is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We get anointed. Without the Holy Spirit, we can be a bit clunky. We can be a bit noisy. We don't always work so well. But the Holy Spirit means that it moves smoothly. For not only are we then doing what we're made to do, but we're doing it empowered in the way that we're meant to do it. Dwight Moody started his experience as a young minister pastoring in a church in Chicago. And he was challenged by two elderly ladies. I'd love to have seen the conversation when these two elderly ladies gang up on this young pastor and they say, you must seek God for his power. So Dwight Moody obediently did. And he says this, he says, I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. He said that he stood up then to preach. And he said the sermons were no different from before. I didn't present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. What happened? His sermons got anointed. He got anointed. Would you please pray for all the preachers at Christchurch London that we too get anointed? anointed and pray for yourself too in your service to the Lord that you would know not just God's love but his anointing thirdly when the spirit is present we get healing I'm often privileged in coming and being part of this church family on a Sunday to talk with individuals who share with me something of the pain they are carrying And I often marvel at the amount of pain that we all live with. Some of it is emotional, psychological, mental. Others of it is physical. Our bodies are literally hurting. Now, one of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit is given is we receive healing. James wrote to a church and said these words. He said, is anyone amongst you ill? 
Well, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil, that word again, signifying the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Lord. And the Lord offered, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. And as I was preparing this sermon this week, I was chatting with Elise Lambsdale. Elise works in the church office. And she said, oh, she said, I've had an experience of that. I said, really? She said, yes. She said, when I was 11, I developed a very unusual form of childhood arthritis. She said, it was very painful. She said, sometimes I needed help getting dressed in the morning. I would walk round hunched up. She said, I often, I couldn't pick up a pen. My hands were sort of stuck in that sort of position. She said, I would need assistance. And she said, this was very difficult. She said it lasted two years until she went to a church camp one summer. And at the end of a meeting, a speaker offered to pray for all those that were sick. She said there were lots of people there. So it wasn't that there was a laying on of hands, but this person prayed. She said, I didn't feel anything at all. But I looked down at my hands and I thought, well, I should try and move them. And so she said, I went like that and I went like that with absolutely no pain at all. So as any 13-year-old girl should, she said, I burst into tears, I jumped up and down, and I gave my life to Jesus. And she said, then I went and saw a doctor. He said, I've never heard of anything like this in my life before. He said, young lady, you need to expect the arthritis to come back. It may be weeks, it may be months, but this, you know, it's very unlikely that you won't receive it again. She said, all I can say is that that was eight years ago, and I haven't experienced any pain from arthritis since that moment. Now, I appreciate that there will be the sick and the weary here this morning. Some of us, sick and weary, having asked for the Holy Spirit and having asked for healing. All I can say to you is to encourage you to continue to pray and to continue to ask. And those who've done lots of this sort of thing say that those that continue to receive prayer on an ongoing basis get better more than those that only get prayer or ask for prayer once. And of course, there's lots even in this passage about the importance of persevering in prayer. So three things the Holy Spirit shares, love, anointing, healing. Things every city in the world is eager for, thirsty for, today. So how then do we pray for the Holy Spirit in our lives? It's time to go back to this passage. The first thing that we do is we ask. And in fact, there's three verbs that Jesus uses here. You ask somebody for something that they have and you don't have. That's what we're doing. Jesus has the Holy Spirit to give. We're short on the Holy Spirit. So we go to the one who has and we ask him. Then we're told to seek. Now, seek means that we don't necessarily find instantaneously. Sometimes we do. Look around. There it is. Other times, my family were involved with this last night. Somebody dropped an earring on the floor. It's time to seek. And after a few minutes, we found it. We were confident that it was there. We knew it had been dropped in that room. It was there somewhere. And there's something of that idea. Seek, but confident that you will find, even if it takes a little while. Ask, seek, knock. 
I knock on a door when I trust there's someone on the other side who can open the door so I can go through it. Unless they open it, I can't go through. Ask, seek, knock. And we're to do that in a particular way. We're to do it in a trusting way. I ask trusting. And here's, here's the argument that Jesus makes, and it's quite a powerful one. He says, okay, he says, listen, you earthly fathers, if your child asks for something good, fish, bread, say, your instinctive response is to say, yes, of course. Uh, this happened to me actually on Friday afternoon. One of my daughters, Vicky, was working up in Oxford, and she called in the middle of the afternoon. Very unusual thing for her to do. So I picked up the phone, and she's in tears, and she says, Dad, I am sick, and I need to get to a doctor quickly. Now, at that point, the father in me entirely forgets that I have appointments that afternoon. We decide the quickest way for her to get back to London is, to get to, is actually on, on the Oxford Tube, and I say, I will meet you there. You tell me when you arrive, I will be there ahead of time. We will get you to a doctor in a, minute, in a matter of moments. And I'd actually forgotten I had someone coming to my house. I wasn't there when they arrived. Now, any father would do that. You don't think, oh, what else have I got? Have I got anything more important in my day? No, you just go, yes, of course. You don't, there's no rational processing. It's just an instinctive, yes. Now, Jesus is appealing to that common experience. We all know about that experience. Whether we're fathers or not, we all understand that experience. He says, now he says, if you, though you are evil, in other words, you lot, you broken, fallen, selfish, preoccupied bunch, you all go, yes. How much more will your heavenly father, who is entirely good, give to those that ask him? Now that should give us a very high level of confidence. So we ask, seek, and knock, trusting. He's, he, it's almost, he's, I was going to say, he's going to say yes, but I want to say he's already said yes. And he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And we're to do so believing, not just trusting, but believing that he will give. I have a friend called Kenny who was desperate for more of the Spirit in his life. He read this passage. He prayed this prayer. He said he prayed himself to sleep every night for three months with this prayer. He said on occasions he wept himself to sleep with this prayer. And he didn't experience, he didn't have an experience. And so he kept asking. And then one day, three months later, a neighbor stopped him in the stairwell of the apartment block he was living in and said, Kenny, forgive me for being so rude as to ask you a personal question. But he said, I've noticed a very distinct change in your whole way you hold yourself and go about things over the previous couple of months. Please tell me, what's happened to you? And at that point, Kenny realized he'd received some time ago. But because he'd not come, I guess, that confidently, he'd not, or he'd not even realized it. Now, sometimes we have an experience. Sometimes we don't, but we have a distinct change in our lives. The point is not the, to get, the, point is not the gift, it's the giver. So we go after him, and he will give to us. And so we're to ask, seek, and knock, and we're to do so trustingly, and we're to do so confidently believing. As I come into land here, I want to just talk about three habits that I think are important. I think they're important for those of us that want to stay full of the Spirit. And they're important for those of us who might say, I've never had 
anything of the experience you're talking about, David. I really don't, you know, this is new to me. What should I do? Let me suggest three habits as we close. And the first is worship. The Holy Spirit is given to glorify Jesus. So he's attracted to those who share that desire. So my encouragement to you is not to become preoccupied about the prayer, but become preoccupied about glorifying God. And do that particularly in worship. It's interesting how the psalmists often say not only they, you know, they presuppose that the heart matters. What's the most important thing in worship? Your heart. But they also say the body can be really useful in worship. So the psalmist writes, lift your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Why should we lift our hands? Well, one of the reasons for that is actually experts tell us that the way we use our body affects how we feel. I cannot stand like this before God and have my heart closed. It's possible to sit like, stand like that and have my heart closed. So I want to encourage you, worship what's important, your heart. But you might find the body helpful too. I remember the first time I ever lifted my hands in worship. It was an excruciatingly painful experience. Because I was convinced that everybody else in the room was looking at me. Of course, the truth was no one was interested in me because they were all thinking about themselves. That's how it is. We should all actually be thinking about Jesus. That's what I would recommend. <laughs> but if you've never used your body as part of worship, wouldn't it be odd? You say, you know, I express my love to others, but I never use my body. <laughs> would that be a strange thing? If you've never used your body in worship, then I would encourage you to think about at the right moment, in private or in public, when we finish in a few minutes or when you go home. Fix the heart when you do that. But the most important thing is the heart. So we worship, firstly. Secondly, we enjoy fellowship. Fellowship is a uniquely Christian word to reflect the fact that we're drawn from all sorts of different backgrounds and nations and made into a family. We're from all sorts of different places, but we're made into a family together. So the second thing that we do is we give ourselves to one another. Now, if you're of a little more formal disposition here, you may shake hands with others. Well, that's, that's fine. You shake hands, but you know the derivation of shaking hands in the days of Knights of Valor was that I would have to lay down my sword in order to put out my right hand. So I said, I trust you. I lay down my weapon and I trust that you're not going to sear me through with your sword at this moment in time. But you're going to reach out your hand. And that's what we do. Fellowship is the reaching out in trust. Now for many of us and for those that know each other well or whatever, we don't shake hands but we open our whole body. Why do we do that? Hi, great to see you. Because it's a physical demonstration of what's in my heart. You're welcome. So give yourself to God, but then give yourself to one another. And my experience is that when we give ourselves to one another uh, without any hesitation, then it also opens our hearts to God at the same time. You can't actually, I would challenge you, to give yourself to others here, but not give yourself to God. I think it's very, very difficult. Give ourselves to one another. Give ourselves to God. And thirdly, give ourselves to serving. 
give ourselves to serving. We are a family here. Now, if, you, if church is not a family, you can go to church, get what you can out of it, and scorecard it over lunch. It was okay today. David was a bit overlong. Joe was pretty good. Band sounded great, or whatever. You could, but if you're a family, you don't do that because a family puts on events together. That's what I was taught in my teenage years. Turn the television off and come and help. When I was mature, I didn't need to be told that. I just did it. And that's what a family does. It does things together. I, looking back in my teenage years, some of the best conversations I ever had with my parents were over the washing up when we were serving together. Now, my encouragement to all of us, if we want to be full of the Spirit, give yourself to God, give yourself to one another, give yourself to the church. Because you can't do those three things and keep your heart closed. And interesting, my father, going back to that first story, he never asked for the Spirit, but the Spirit is looking for open hearts. And if your heart's open, you might not even get to ask before you get more. And sometimes when people teach on this, they go, oh, well, you know, you've got, here's the five or six exact things you've got to understand or you've got to do before you get more of the Spirit. I don't believe it. I don't think it's that complicated. I think this is a relationship, and if you've got an open heart to him, an open heart to one another, an open heart to his bride, off you go. You're going to be fine. He'll give you all you need. Can we have the band back, please? Let me just, as we... Uh, is the band out there? <laughs> All right, well, I'm uh, rich. You've made my day. Thank goodness for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> this was going so well, but if I started singing, it might all go very bad. <laughs> Let me just come into land with, um, with this. In the autumn of 1821, a 29-year-old lawyer, New York rather than London, went on a walk to pray the prayer of surrender to make himself available to God. He described what happened next. He said, The Holy Spirit seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. It seemed to come in waves of liquid love. I could not express it in any other way. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I cried out, I shall die! if these continue to pass over me. And the man's name, or the young man, became one of, if not the leading preacher and lead Christian leader of his generation. His name was Charles Finney. It was said of Charles Finney that when he went to Rochester on the east coast of the US, that the population of the small town increased by two-thirds as people came to hear him preach and crime reduced by two-thirds as people started to live right. Not only was he a great preacher, but he was the president of the first college in America that insisted on receiving not just men, but women and people of color into their ranks. He worked tirelessly on the Underground Railroad, getting slaves out of the South and into freedom in the north of his nation. But he said that it all came back to an experience of liquid love when as a New York lawyer, he decided to pray the prayer of surrender. 
And here is how I'd like to close things this morning, and we've got just a little bit of time. Is in a moment I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to invite us all quietly just to pray the prayer of surrender. And you may, that may be a general prayer, or there may be particular things you want to surrender, and I want to pray. And I'm going to ask for the love of God to fill this space. And I'm going to pray the prayer that Jesus has told us to pray. Then I'm going to ask Rich whether he'll lead us, and we're going to sing a song. And then I'm going to invite people forward who know that God is particularly at work in their hearts and lives this morning and would like to receive further prayer. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.